you will join me. We continue in our series as we are close to finishing up with the Gospel of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 23. And this morning we will be looking at verses 44 through 49. The title of our sermon is Innocent Death. And our keywords for our worshipers in training are darkness, death, and curtain. Now in reading the Gospels, it's really important to understand what they are so that we can keep the main thing the main thing. It's also helpful to consider that while we look at the parts of something that we remember about the whole. And here's what I mean by that. We, we work week by week, verse by verse through books of the Bible, but if we just isolate verses and don't think about them in context of the whole of the book, uh, then we can come to some wrong conclusions. And I bring this up this morning because as we look at the death of Jesus, we need to make note of the fact that all four gospel accounts are often misread and misunderstood because they're not identified as what they truly are. Here's what I mean by that. Most people look at the four gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as sort of biological Uh, biographical narratives of Jesus, the life and times of Jesus Christ. But that's not really what the gospel accounts were intended to be. Have you ever noticed that we have a little bit of information about Jesus' birth, and then we have a whole lot of time in between his birth and then when his ministry begins at the age of 30? We have a little bit of information we saw in Luke when Jesus was 12 years old in the temple, He was inadvertently left in Jerusalem by his parents, meeting with the teachers of the law in the temple. But other than that, we don't have much information about Jesus' life until his ministry begins at the age of 30. And so from 30 on through the age of 33, we see Jesus' ministry. Now, if you've ever read a biography, you know that that's a story about a person's entire life. It's about everything that happens, and surely there were significant things that happened throughout Jesus' young life that aren't recorded in the Scriptures. Why is that? Well, that's because the Gospels are not so much biographical sketches about Jesus. They are a passion narrative with extended introductions. And when we say passion, we're talking about suffering. It's an old way of talking about suffering, the passion of Jesus Christ. We use this word to talk about someone being really excited about something in our vernacular, something that we're really into, we're very passionate about it, but historically, that word has meant suffering. So the passion of Jesus Christ, it's the suffering of Jesus Christ, and that's mainly what the Gospels are about. We have a short description of his early life in each Gospel, We have quick snippets of several things he did and said throughout his ministry for three years. But then the Gospels all hit the brakes and slow down dramatically when we get to the last seven days of Jesus' earthly life. Nearly a third of John's Gospel is devoted to the last 24 hours of his life. As for Luke, we began to look at the final days of Jesus way back in chapter 19 in the triumphal entry. So keep that in mind as we work through the Gospel of Luke over the next few weeks in our our conclusion to this Gospel. As you read through all the Gospels, the central focus 
is the passion of Jesus Christ, and everything is working toward this moment. Now, last week, we looked at Jesus' final journey down the Via Dolorosa, the way of grief. He made his way to Golgotha, where he was crucified. Remember, we saw Jesus' interaction with the criminals, one who hung to his right and one to his left. And this morning, we come to this moment when Jesus dies on the cross. It's here where we also see the final of the three words from the cross that Luke records Jesus saying. So let's read together, beginning in verse 44 of Luke chapter 23. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they had saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there's six things Luke wants us to see in these six verses this morning. Three of them are events or moments for us to pay attention to. And then we're going to see three specific groups of people that Luke draws our attention to. So that's how we're going to look at this. Three moments or events and three groups of people. So the first event we see in verse 44, and that is Luke says that the land was shrouded in darkness. Let's read that again, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, the way the Jews marked out time is quite different from us today. They looked at the 24 hours, and they divided it into night and day. And instead of going from midnight to midnight, the day began at 6 a.m. The morning, the first hour of the morning was 6 a.m. Typically, that was sunrise, and the day ended at sunset at 6 p.m., and then it was night. So the first hour of the day was 6 a.m., and you go from there. So when Luke writes, it was about the sixth hour, he's saying it was high noon. It was noontime. Now, Mark notes in his gospel account that they crucified Jesus at about the third hour. So around 9 a.m., he was crucified. So now we're at noon, Moving from 9 a.m. to noon, Jesus hanging on the cross, and then he says at the end of verse 44 that the darkness continued until the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m. So all in all, Jesus was on the cross from the third to the ninth hour, from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. For six hours, Jesus hung upon Calvary's cross. Now, there's a lot here that happens that Luke doesn't record in his gospel account. And all these events are certainly important, but Luke wants his readers to focus on these hours of darkness. You know, the darkness here is nature's commentary on the situation, and of course, that's God's commentary on the situation. Now, many people have looked at this darkness and said, well, it's, it's figurative language. It was a dark day. It was a dark situation. It was evil. 
And while all of that's true, we know that Luke means something much more literal because in verse 45, he writes that the sun's light failed. This is literal darkness on the land. Some kind of occurrence where the sun was covered, there was no light upon the land. And of course, it's no coincidence that this is the same thing that the prophets speak of in the Old Testament. Darkness upon a land being a sign of the judgment of God. It's an echo of all of these prophetic texts that describe the coming days of the Lord. The prophets also identified darkness as a cosmic sign of mourning. Amos had long before prophesied that there would be a darkness at the time of the day of the Lord. He said this in Amos 8, 9. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make that time like morning for an only sun. It's also very clear that this is an indication of the triumph of evil in that moment. It was only for a little while, and surely Satan was delighted and the demons rejoiced in their apparent victory. It was the very thing that Jesus predicted back in chapter 22 when he said, this is your hour, the power of darkness. And there's also a very vivid picture here for us of what's going on. As Jesus dies, he's making a way for a new exodus. He's making a way for the darkness of sin to no longer have dominion over his people, making a way for them, for us to walk in the light, the newness of life. And so Jesus bears the darkness as he literally hangs and the sun is covered at high noon. Human evil, spiritual rebellion, God's judgment, all present in this moment. The darkness which surrounds the dying Christ could be indicators of any of these things. And so three hours of darkness in the middle of a day are quite significant. It's a shameful, wicked moment. So when the darkness lifts, we'd expect that God's judgment would have fallen, that God's judgment would fall on those who have wrongly accused Jesus, that God's judgment would fall upon those who have crucified his only son. But when the light returns, only one person had experienced the wrath of God, the son himself. Jesus was plunged into darkness, suspended between heaven and earth, abandoned by his friends, destroyed by his enemies, and punished by the Father. And this has to be the most shocking element to the darkness surrounding the cross. For the first, last, and only time in all of eternity, God the Father and God the Son were not in perfect relationship. God the Father looked at Jesus, his Son, with whom he'd always been well-pleased, whom he'd always loved, And he crushed him. And Mark and Matthew record those chilling words of Jesus. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was excluded from the presence of the Father. And the darkness of the sky showed the state of the relationship between Father and Son. 
For Jesus, the Son of God, the cross was utter darkness. But a new day will come. A new day of a new creation. The day of glorious resurrection. The day when the darkness becomes light. But today Jesus descends to death and to the grave. In only a short while, the glorious light will shine so that we might never know a minute of darkness in our lives because Jesus experienced the soul-rending terror of rejection from the Father, of separation from all of God's blessings so that we might never have to. And not only does he take away the darkness that is ours, he has won for us the light of God's mercy and grace and presence and love in our lives. If you're a Christian, when you consider Jesus on the cross covered by darkness, both physically and spiritually, you should see that he was taking upon himself the very thing that you deserve. That is your darkness, that is your shame, that is your grief, because that is your sin. And when you read about that in the end, in the new heavens and in the new earth, God's people will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give us that light. There will be no darkness at all because in Christ the darkness has been dispelled. We should remember that Jesus has given us what he deserves because he has taken upon himself all that we deserve. His glory, his perfection, his joy, all given to us. And so the first major event of this passage is that the darkness covered the land. The second is this, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The separation between God and mankind because of sin, was vividly illustrated in the temple. The temple was the place of God's presence among his people. However, within the temple, it was very clear that God is wholly unlike man. And man on his own is wholly incapable of approaching the holy, holy, holy God who is perfect and just in every way. And every day Jew could not even enter into where it would have been vividly displayed for them, the otherness of God. They could enter into the place, the courtyard within the temple, but could never go to the most holy place. And even among the priests, they only entered the holy place in the temple when it was their one week out of their entire lifetime to serve on behalf of the people. And even then, they were separated from the most holy place by a massive curtain, 30 feet long and 30 feet tall and an inch thick. Only the high priest once per year would go into the holy of holies. And only once per year after the washing and sacrifices were completed in rigorous detail. And all the while, the curtain hung. It was a huge keep-out sign to all who saw it. You are not allowed and you do not belong here. That is until this day, until Jesus' death. Luke writes in verse 45, And the curtain of the temple was torn 
in two. The message is clear. God himself is desecrating his temple. He's finishing it. That's the message. God is at work. He is rending the temple veil. He's deconsecrating what for centuries has been consecrated ground. Now this temple has no more function. The only one that has function is the new temple that is raised up in Jesus Christ. This was Jesus' meaning when he told everyone, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. He's speaking of himself, his death, and his resurrection. And it's interesting that we see in the book of Revelation, in the new heavens and in the new earth, John highlights that there is no temple. There's no church. There's no temple. There's no sanctuary. Why is that? Because wherever the Lamb of God is, everything becomes temple. It's no longer in Jerusalem. It's exclusively in Jesus. And so as we look at Jesus' death, what was being done in Jesus Christ, it was entirely collapsing what God had previously given to his people in Moses and pointing to Jesus as he does more than once, this is my son. Every other sphere of worship including the place God has designated, becomes utterly insignificant unless Christ himself is found there. It's a moment of moments in the whole of the history of faith. It's a moment when God himself is saying, Christ, Jesus, and Christ alone. Do you see the significance? Before, in order to approach unto God, you had to go to the temple. And even then, it was through another mediator. But now, but now we go to Christ. And in Christ, we approach unto God. Because Christ himself has said, no one comes to the Father but through me. But it's in Christ we go to the Father, not behind a curtain. It's this beautiful picture. The curtain is torn. We have access to the Father and who may enter in? Who is welcomed in? All who come through Christ Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. It's an amazing picture of God's glorious design of salvation for all the earth. And so as the curtain is torn, Jesus will be risen up as the new temple, the temple of light in whom we worship and have access to the Father. The third main event we see in verse 46, and that is Jesus cries out. Let's read verse 46 again. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now these words from Jesus are a quotation from Psalm 31 and verse 5. In Psalm 31, David prays for deliverance from his enemies who threatened to put him to shame who attack him, who seek to trap him, who cause distress and grief and sorrow. He says they have made him a horror to his neighbors, an object of dread to his acquaintances, who scheme to take his life, who have made him like a broken vessel. It's in the face of his enemies that the psalmist is expressing his confidence in God. He seeks refuge in the Lord. 
He appeals to God's righteousness, to his willingness and his ability to hear and to see and to help in his name, to deliver him from his enemies. And so David has great confidence in the hand of God. It's a confidence based upon his previous experience with God. So while David is trusting in God, and he is surrounded by his enemies, Jesus is entrusting himself to the Father in the face of death, expressing his submission to the will of the Father, fully confident that he will be delivered by the Father, not from the cross, but from the grave. He fully anticipated the resurrection, even in his final moment. So Jesus' words here are not an expression of alarm or distress or lament that are in the Psalms, but they are focused on this unwavering confidence and trust in the Lord God. These words of Jesus demonstrate that his death fulfilled God's purposes. In the midst of darkness, God is still present And the tearing of the curtain signified, in these words, into your hands I commit my spirit, not only that God continues to be Jesus' father, but that he will rescue him from his enemies, that he will raise him up from the dead, that he will establish him as the forever temple. And the father will protect his son from death. He will fulfill his merciful purposes. And as Jesus set out to fulfill the covenant of redemption that he made with the Father to do all that was necessary to bring in the new covenant of his blood and in commending his spirit into the hands of the Father, he has completed all of the work that he was sent to do with absolute perfection on behalf of all of his people. This is why John records the words of Jesus as he was breathing his last breath. He said, it is finished. It is complete. I have done it all, and it is all sufficient. So these are the moments on the cross that Luke draws to our attention, the darkness that covered the land, the rending or the tearing of the temple curtain, and the crying out of Jesus as he commits his spirit to the Father. But Luke also draws our attention now to three distinct groups in his narrative. As we look at them, keep in mind that we're starting closest to the cross and we're moving out from there. So the first of those is standing closest to Jesus on the cross, and the third is the furthest away. The first is in verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. The execution squad was standing by as Jesus died. And the head of the squad was the centurion. He was the lead executioner. He was the man in charge. He was an expert in execution. Now perhaps today, if this was your job, if you were the one to inject those who are the recipients of capital punishment with a chemical that eventually kills those who received it, while you're putting something in their body that will most certainly end their life, you are shielded from seeing the pain and the suffering and the torment. And perhaps those who in the past have been responsible for pulling the lever on an electric chair, they saw a bit of that suffering, but nothing, nothing to the extent that the centurion saw. There have been many ways down through the years that people have been put to death. 
Some more humane than others, but none can be said to have been as horrific as crucifixion. And so here we have a man who is the head of the most horrific form of death who has no doubt completed many crucifixions and supervised many more as a centurion. Here he sees all that has taken place. He hears the words of Jesus. He sees the people who have cried out for his blood, and instantly he is struck to the core with this reality. This man is innocent. This moment is a sort of climax in this chapter Up until this point, there have been statement after statement of people saying that Jesus is innocent six times in this chapter. And now we see this very man who is responsible to put Jesus to death pronounces him innocent. You don't need a lot of theology to get the message, right? We have to ask a very important question of this. If this man is innocent and he's not dying for his own sins, then whose sins is he dying for? No question about it. He's dying for my sins. He's dying for your sins. He's dying for the centurion's sins. That's what Luke wants us to see in this man. The second group of people we see is a crowd from Jerusalem. Verse 48, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Now, no doubt, this is many of the people who had cried out for Jesus to be crucified. They had asked for Barabbas to be returned to them instead. So we have a group of people who have watched all of this unfold. Luke calls it a spectacle. They followed Jesus as he carried his cross to Golgotha. They watched him as he was nailed to the cross and as he hung. They heard the things he said. They experienced the darkness on the land. And having seen it and having experienced all of it, Luke says upon Jesus' death, they returned home beating their breasts. Now that doesn't really strike us as all that significant. It means they were upset and they were distressed. But in Near East culture, it was a very rare thing that any man would express this kind of grief. Women would beat their breasts, but not man. But this event was so distressing to the people that even the men went away, beating their breasts. It was an extremely emotional event for them. And notice also, Luke sort of leaves Jesus there on the cross with the Roman centurion, gazing to Christ. Who knows what's going on in his heart? But what about all the other onlookers? Yes, they were in great distress, but they turned and walked away. Have you ever noticed when people talk or hear about the suffering and the death of Jesus, they get very emotional sometimes. They get very solemn. They have a sentimental experience about the whole thing. Perhaps you've been to a Good Friday service at some point, and the entire feel of the evening, it's dark, it's solemn, it's sad. Some of you are old enough to remember when Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out. People all over were talking about how sad it was, how awful of a spectacle it was. By the way, I'm not recommending you go see that movie. But this is what movie critics and secular news and Hollywood commentators were all saying about it. It was sad. It was distressing. 
But here's my point. A lot of people in this world will have some kind of encounter with the reality that Jesus was beaten nearly beyond recognition and hung on a cross to die for six hours. And they may see it depicted on the big screen. They may hear about it. They may read about it. But for the most part, they're going to walk away from it and say, that's awful and that's sad. They'll have an emotional experience when it comes to Jesus dying on a cross and they'll walk away from it and maybe they'll even beat their breasts. But you know what? They'll feel better tomorrow. Endless millions of people across the world are saddened by the thought that Jesus died and they walk away from that thought with an overwhelming sense of sadness and sorrow of the tragedy of what happened to him. But they'll be fine tomorrow. It was simply in the moment, in that moment. It was a show of sentiment and sorrow, but it didn't have any lasting significance. It has no real relevance except it's right to feel sorry for Jesus when he is being crucified. But even then, remember what Jesus told us last week. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Do you see the folly? Do you see the foolishness of knowing of Jesus' death, knowing of all that Jesus has accomplished on the cross, and then just walking away from it? The problem isn't Jesus. He went into what he did with enormous deliberation. He went to the cross to die for the sins of his people, not so you would feel sorry for him. So if all you see is something to arouse your emotions... You'll feel better tomorrow, guaranteed. Probably by this afternoon. But if that's you, if you can hear about and ponder and think about the death of Jesus and just walk away from it completely unchanged, you may feel better tomorrow. But it's far worse for all eternity. And this is the condition of many who saw this spectacle and walked away, beating their breasts. They were aroused to certain emotions, but they felt better the next day. Thirdly, the final group of people in Jesus's, that were witness to Jesus' crucifixion are his acquaintances and the women who had followed him. Verse 49, all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now remember, Luke is quick to continue to draw our attention to the fact that these women around Jesus were very faithful to tend to him and to continue to follow after him. There's certainly all sorts of people here. We know from John that this group includes his mother and his brother. And Luke tells us others who have followed from Galilee. And he identifies that they're standing off at a distance, watching everything unfold. Now these, no doubt, are the ones who Jesus has loved the most. But interestingly, Luke only identifies that they were there. No mention of tears. No mention of cries of emotion. They're just there. They're taking it all in. Why? What's the point of Luke pointing this out? Well, these are the ones that Jesus has called unto himself to be eyewitnesses. Not only of his death, but they will also be those who experience his glorious resurrection and the blessing of his grace and salvation that comes through all that they have witnessed, and then they will see his ascension into heaven. These are the eyewitnesses that Luke speaks of in the very first chapter. 
These are the very people who will be telling the world what happened that day on that cursed tree. The innocent one died for the guilty. The Son of God took upon himself the wrath of God for the sons and daughters of men. The good gave himself for the bad. Judgment that is my due falls on him that the fellowship of God that was his right will become my privilege. They watched, they observed, they saw it all, and they will see more, and eventually they will announce it to all the world. Well, all of us in the room today are in one of those three categories of people. We're either like the centurion, we're in that crowd of people, or we are Jesus' acquaintances who have followed him from Galilee. What about you? Where are you among the people? Perhaps you're like the centurion. You've spent your life crucifying Christ, putting him down, keeping him as far away from you as possible. You may not say anything negative about Jesus, but your life is a constant rejection of all that he has commanded. Your concern is with yourself and this world, not with who Jesus is, not with what Jesus has accomplished. And here you are this morning getting a fresh glimpse of who Jesus is and what he has done. You have a profound sense that you've never had before. You recognize that indeed Jesus is the Christ. You see him high and lifted up, not just on a cross, but on a throne as the once and forever king of glory who reigns and rules for all eternity. Are you seeing that now? Are you seeing that Jesus wasn't dying for his own sins? He didn't have any, but dying for the sins of others? If you repent of your sin and trust in Christ, Jesus has died for you. Why would you go on rejecting Christ? It's insanity. But perhaps you're here this morning as a spectator. You think about what I've said today what we've looked at in the Gospel of Luke, and you think, that's awful, that's really sad. And you feel bad about all this, but you know as soon as you leave here, you're gonna go back to your life of worldliness and self-fulfillment, and everything will be normal again. Yes, it is sad Jesus died, but it's just that kind of a world. These things happen, and besides, that was a long time ago. It doesn't make a difference in your life. Perhaps you even do the things Christians do from time to time, but it doesn't change anything. You won't be devoted to Jesus because of a feeling you had at noon on a Sunday. If that's you, you're with millions just like you. You walk away from Jesus, and you might even be beating your breast in sorrow, but it will be over. Oh, the countless millions of souls that have had an emotional experience with Jesus but have never truly trusted in him. It's a sad reality in our day to think that they are secure in him because they've had a sad day when they thought about Jesus dying, but then everything went back to how it always was. If that's you, you're not okay You think you're okay, you might feel like all is well, but you will be sorry for all eternity. And that's the horror of it all. You hear the word of God, and ultimately you despise it because you know it will go away soon and you'll feel better. But there are others. There are others, and I pray that this could be all of us. We see Jesus, we know Jesus for who he is, what he has done, not just in history, but what he has done for us, 
as his people. And if this is you, if you are an eyewitness to the glory of Christ in your own life, the rest of your life is all about Jesus. He died for you, and he wants you to be witness to the world. The Apostle Paul summarizes it all quite well in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Have you been reconciled to God? If so, we praise him for giving us new life in Jesus Christ. But if not, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because Christ has died to receive upon himself the wrath that was due to us.